Thank you, Kent. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed. Have a great time and children's church together. And thank you for those who will go and help lead them. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to First Corinthians chapter one. We're going to be there today. First Corinthians one. As you're uh, turning there, uh, just a, a quick comment. It was really wonderful to hear you uh, singing today. Um, I grew up in a, a church tradition that emphasized worship as being something between an individual and God, and we just happened to be in the room with other people. And so the lights were turned down low, and fog machine was going, and lights were on the stage. And I'm serious. I'm not kidding. And um, several thousand people were in the room, but everyone thought of worship as a private, individual activity between them and God. That's not at all the picture the Bible gives us of worship. In fact, the New Testament says when we gather and we sing, that we're singing not just to God, but to each other, and that our singing together has a corporate effect of encouraging us to remember who God is. And you may have experienced that today. I certainly did, as we could hear each other remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel. So thanks, Amber and the, the band, for the great job you did today of encouraging us to worship. You did a great job. Today we're going to end our, our series on prayer that we've been in together for about two months. And uh, it's been encouraging as we've uh, learned more about prayer together. Uh, Pastor Daryl Del Huse was with us last week. Did a great job, didn't he? Um, I needed a nap just after listening to the guy. He's high on energy. Did a really wonderful job. Let's read uh, the Lord's Prayer together one more time. It'll be here on the screen. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The last six weeks or so, we've taken a, a phrase each week and considered how Jesus modeled for us a life of prayer. And it's not that every single time we pray, we have to go through all of these ingredients, if you will, in prayer but that our lives as Christians ought to be informed and characterized by the, the whole extent of prayer that Jesus taught. So the first week we talked about confidence, that when we come to God in prayer, we're, we're coming not because of anything we've done, but because of simply who He is, that He's our Father. And then we looked at adoration, that our initial posture in prayer always ought to be to praise God for who He is and what, and what He's done. It's important to ask God for things, and He wants us to, but we want to start with simply recognizing who He is in prayer. And maybe you've picked up on this, but every week when we gather together, the first song that we sing is always about adoration. It's always praising God for who He is, modeling us for us that we approach God, not first asking Him to do something else, but thanking Him for who He already is. And then third, we talked about submission. Father, send your kingdom today. God, we submit ourselves to you and in, in what you're doing and pray that our lives will be characterized by who you are in the work that you're doing. And then petition, Father, help us. 
We have a God who loves to hear from us and longs to answer prayer. Isn't that amazing? God listens when we pray. And then we talked about confession. Everybody's favorite week was, Father, forgive us. That was a joke. A bit serious in here. And then um, two weeks ago, ambition. God, lead us, not it's in temptation, but deliver us from evil. But God, as I think about today, my hope is that I would be led through any trial that today might face and be led from any temptation into the things that you have for us today. Now, before we move on from this series, I think there's one major question left for us to consider. If, if those are the main ingredients in prayer, then how is a life of prayer sustained over the long haul? Perhaps you're like me and you've set out and said, I'm going to be different. I'm going to become a person who prays. Not just when I need something from God, not just when, when life feels like it's falling apart, but all the time. I want to become a person of prayer. Only to have a couple of good days in a row and then to find, oh crud, it's been a week and I haven't talked to God at all. Perhaps you've experienced that like me. So the question I want to try to answer today is, how is a life of prayer sustained, not for a few days or even a few weeks, but for a lifetime? What would it look like for you to become a praying person? For many of us, we might think of that first only in the sense of duty, that God says to pray, so dadgummit, I'm going to try really hard to pray. That will sustain you for a while, but you won't last. Duty is not enough to fuel a life of prayer. There has to be something more. And that something more, the scripture tells us, is delight. That we would be people who move from simply talking to God because we ought to, to be talking to God because we want to. The secret to a sustained life of prayer is gratitude. Gratitude is what fuels a lifetime of prayer. Have you ever noticed that the people you most like to be around are grateful people? As I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but think of uh, Wally Hall back there in the back and Randy Hagler. Is Randy still in here? Randy. These two guys are some of the most grateful, joyful people I know. Everybody likes them. Why? Well, it's clearly not because they're so good looking. It's because, sorry Pam, it's because these are grateful men. They're joyful men. They're happy men. Why? It's not mainly because their personality is wired that way, although that might have something to do with it. It's because they're men of gratitude. They're thankful for what God has given them. They're delight because gratitude seems to pour out of them. The secret to a sustained life of prayer is gratitude. So today I just want us to consider how to become people of gratitude. Tim Keller had a helpful sentence, or a couple of sentences in his book on prayer, which is back there at the bookstall if you're interested. He put it like this. We are never as thankful as we should be. When good things come to us, we do everything possible to tell ourselves we've accomplished that, or at least that we deserve it. We take the credit. And when our lives simply are going along pretty smoothly, without a lot of difficulties, we don't live in quiet, amazed 
thankful consciousness of it. In the end, we not only rob God of the glory due to him, but the assumption that we're keeping our lives going robs us of the joy and relief that constant gratitude to an all-powerful God brings. We could wrap up and just close there. That is so true. That the decision to choose to think primarily of ourselves not only robs God glory for what He's doing, but it robs us of the joy that comes from living as people of gratitude. So gratitude is what drives prayer. If you struggle with prayer, mainly it might be because you struggle with gratitude. Now, perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm not a particularly grateful person. In fact, I'm kind of uptight. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't feel grateful. How do I go to God with gratitude if I don't feel any gratitude? Isn't that phony? Or maybe you're thinking, my life is really hard. I don't have anything to be grateful for. And in a sense, for some of us today, our lives are a wreck. We're facing difficult, hard circumstances. There was an article this weekend in uh, the New York Times on gratitude. A guy named Arthur Brooks said this. It won't be on the screen. I just found it this morning. He said, for many people, gratitude is difficult because life is difficult. Even beyond deprivation and depression, there are many ordinary circumstances in which gratitude doesn't come easily. Is that you today? Gratitude is difficult because life is difficult. Friends, the Christian faith doesn't put sugar over hard things and just tell you they taste good, so swallow it. Christianity is honest. Christianity says life is often hard. Circumstances are often not what we expected them to be. But yet we're to have joy and be a grateful people all the time. Well, how does that work? A lack of gratitude has very little to do with how your health is. It has very little to do with how much money you have or whether that college professor you have right now is fair or if your spouse is what you turned out, what you thought they would turn out to be or if the other kids to you in homeroom or on the playground are nice to you. Gratitude has very, very little to do with how easy our lives are or the degree to which today turns out to be what we expected it to be. In fact, gratitude has almost nothing to do with any of those things. Gratitude has to come from someplace far deeper than the stuff of life. Gratitude is not primarily circumstantial, but rather it's rooted in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Something outside of us, something objective, historical, that ought to frame the way we look at everything. Gratitude grows in the rich soil of the gospel. If we want to become people who are grateful, then it must come from something more than our circumstances, our health, the people around us, and how much we have. It must come from what God says is true about us because of who God is. Are you with me? Godly gratitude understands my sin is far worse than I ever imagined. And God's love and grace and forgiveness 
are far more wonderful than I ever dreamed. That is where gratitude comes from. You see, the person of gratitude, the the Wally Halls and the Randy Haglers, are people who know that with Christ, there's always cause for gratitude because God has solved our deepest problems already. And the difficult things in life that we face today or tomorrow or for the next 10 years are not ultimately things that cause sadness. They're things that that provoke us to see ways in which we're still depending on ourselves, not on Christ. And so even the hard things can be things that ultimately produce gratitude. Gratitude grows in the rich soil of what Christ has already done for us. And so if you say, Chuck, I'm not a thankful person, then the way to grow in that gratitude is not to change your circumstances. It's not to get a better spouse. It's not to get a better job. It's not to wear more name brand clothes or find more friends. Any of those things might, under certain circumstances, be things that are allowable, but none of those will solve a lack of gratitude. None of them. They'll simply exchange the externals of your life. For you to become a grateful person, it's got to go much, much deeper down into the gospel. Keller's again helpful. In the same book, he talks about thanking God every day for three categories of things. He says, start with thanking God for the ways God gives and sustains our physical life. You know, the people that in our church that I find are the most thankful people are often the people that have the very least They're not sure sometimes how they're going to pay rent the next month or buy the next meal. But then often when I go from a meeting with somebody like that to a meeting with somebody who has an abundance, often the person with little is far more grateful. Why? Because they're aware that God is the one that sustains their lives. And so the pride of many possessions hasn't made them unhappy like it has in others. Second, Keller talks about thanking God for the ways God gives and sustains our spiritual life. And that's really what I'm talking about today. That our ultimate gift of God is our salvation in Christ. And that can never be taken away from us. Romans 8, 9, 10 do such a great job of describing that. Read that sometime if you haven't recently. And then finally, Keller says to thank God for the particular mercies bestowed on us. Christian, brothers and sisters who are here today, there are ways in which God has been evident to you in the last week, ways in which his mercy has been clear upon you. And thanking God for those things in an obvious, passionate, praiseworthy way makes the heart glad, doesn't it? So refreshing your heart every day with God you did this today, and I'm thankful for it. I'm I'm not talking about a brand new car or a new job or even an audible voice from God that was an answer to something you were praying for, but simply the little things in life that God uses to carry us through to another day. Thanking God for those produces gratitude. We tend to think that gratitude is mainly about how our lives are presently going. But don't you know someone whose circumstances are really crummy? 
much worse than yours, and yet they're happy. Why is that? It's not because they have a happy gene. It's because they're aware and they choose to focus on what God has done for them. Now, I'd like to show you today in 1 Corinthians, I didn't forget you're there, how that's true. I'd like to show you proof, if you will, from the Bible itself that gratitude isn't about circumstances. It's about the gospel. Now, give me about five minutes before we read it for me to set up the circumstances so that this will make sense to us. The person who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was a man named Paul. Paul was the greatest Christian mind the world has ever known, except for Jesus. Outside of Jesus, the best, smartest, deepest thinker Christianity has ever produced was a guy named Paul. Paul opened an entire continent to the gospel. He wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody. He is still studied today as the expert missionary. Circumstantially, Paul's life was far easier before he became a Christian than after. In fact, his life got much, much harder with Jesus than without Jesus. Let me see if I can explain that. Before Christ, Paul was a part of the elite of his society. He had attained the very pinnacle of his profession. He was respected. He was powerful. He was educated. He was tenacious. He was well thought of. He had everything his life told him, that's what you ought to get to have the very best life. And he had tenaciously pursued it and attained it. But after becoming a Christian, Paul faced awful circumstance after awful circumstance after awful circumstance. He was imprisoned, beaten, homeless, pummeled with rocks until the people throwing the rocks thought he was dead. Multiple times. He was deserted by Christian and non-Christian alike. At one point in one of his letters towards the end of his life, he says, everyone has left me except one person. Have you ever felt completely deserted? That stinks. Paul faced that. Ultimately, he met his death in Rome. He had an extremely difficult life. And yet, if you read his letters, you find a man of deep gratitude. You find a joyful person. I don't think Paul was a particularly easy guy to get along with. I don't imagine him being the kind of person you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with because he's, he's just happy. And yet, if you read it closely, all throughout his 13 letters, he's a person of joy. He's a person marked by deep gratitude in the gospel. Why? Even among difficult relationships and in really harsh circumstances, Paul still was grateful. Paul was a person who understood thankfulness doesn't come from my circumstances. It comes from my Christ who gave himself for me and now lives in me. Therefore, the most important needs I ever have had have already been met. Therefore, I can live in thankfulness regardless of what I face. Now, one example of this was his letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was an important city in Paul's day. 
Now, I realize 99% of you in the room could care less about that, but I want to tell you the circumstances behind his letter so that this perhaps could make more sense to the circumstances you're facing. You can go to Corinth today. No one lives in the ancient city anymore, but there's still ruins there. Here's a picture of one of the parts of the city. There was a mall in ancient Corinth. This was one of the shops. You can walk down the street, see the, the front of the stores, and in the back of that door would have been the storeroom. Isn't that crazy? People have been shopping forever. <laughs> the next picture will show you. Uh, these were bathhouses. So um, ladies and the two or three of you men who have had pedicures, you could go into a bathhouse and get yourself all pampered up in the town of Corinth. They also did a whole bunch of other things we won't talk about in those bathhouses. Now, the third picture, over on the left, you see some columns. This was part of an ancient temple in Rome, in Corinth. Corinth was a place full of paganism, idolatry, and all kinds of moral craziness. Paul traveled to Corinth, went into the city to plant a church where there was no church. So he went in with a few friends. The first, his practice was, the very first thing he would do is he'd go into the town and he'd seek to share the gospel first with who? With the Jews. Paul would start there because from Genesis to Malachi, he knew these people understand the God of the Old Testament. And so he would go to them, he'd go to the people who were the most likely to agree with him first, and he'd spend lots of time sharing the gospel with them. There's a great principle for us there. When you seek to share the truth with somebody, start with what you can agree on, not the things you're going to fight about. Listen to someone's story and begin presenting the gospel with where your worldviews match. And then move into the areas where there may be divergent views. Don't start like the far right-wing politicians do. Don't start with the things you're going to scream at each other about. And by the way, that doesn't help. It's not fruitful. Start with where there's agreement. So Paul went into Corinth. He started where there should have been agreement. And in this case, it didn't pan out that way. Acts 18 tells us, that Paul spent lots and lots of time sharing the gospel with the Jews, and eventually they rejected him. But then he went from the Jews to the Gentiles. He began presenting the gospel to them. Over time, a church was born. Now here's how he started his letter to them later after he left. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Isn't that a sweet name? Anybody pregnant here today? That's a great name, Sosthenes. There was one young boy in the room that raised his hand. Mama, you need to talk to him about how that works. Verse 2. To the church of God, that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord's Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has 
been in Corinth. He planted the church. He got rejected by his own people. He went to the people least like him. Lived there at least a year and a half, probably closer to two years. Spending every day in his vocation and every night in the homes and in a gathered community sharing the truth of the gospel. He left when it looked like there was a church strong enough to sustain itself, and he moved on to the next city. And now he's writing back to them saying, here's who you are because of what God has done for you. Now all of that looks happy and rosy, doesn't it? But if you've ever read the rest of the letter, then you'll find that this church was probably the worst church Paul ever planted. If you go on through past the next paragraph, Paul has all kinds of difficult, confrontive, hard things to say to this church. The book of Acts tells us some of what had happened, but then if you read on through the rest of the letter, you find out all kinds of things that had gone wrong. Now put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You went to Corinth and talked to your own people, and what did they do? They said, poop on you, Paul. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus isn't the Messiah. The Old Testament doesn't point forward to him. You're a fool. And so in deep heartache and pain and rejection, then he started sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And have you ever had that circumstance where something doesn't go the way you wanted it to, and so you choose to shift your focus somewhere else, you invest a lot of energy, hard work, time, passion, and something seems to come out of the ashes, and it looks like it's going well. Can you think of something like that? Maybe it was a degree. You switched majors, and now you're into the early studies in that new major, and it's going really well. There's lots of joy in it. Or you broke up with a boyfriend or girlfriend that was a loser, and you found a new one. That relationship seems to be really positive. Or you got diagnosed with some disease. You got cancer. You go and get treated. You get a scan back, and it says everything's clear. Circumstantially, things appear better. Are you with me? So Paul had that experience. He left Corinth, and things looked like they were going really, really well. But pretty soon, Corinth becomes a problem church, not the kind of church you'd want to bring a lost friend or family member to. Factions had developed. Some people said, I want to follow this person. Other people want to follow this person. Other people want to follow this person. And they're all fighting among each other. That sounds wonderful. That doesn't ever happen in churches today, does it? Church members were in conflicts so big, they were taking each other to court. So Christian and Christian were fighting to such a degree that they were dragging each other before people who didn't know God, saying, solve our problem because the other one's a liar. That doesn't happen today either, does it? Everyone was fighting over who had the more spiritual of the spiritual gifts. Oh, you're better, I'm better than you because I can do this and you can't. And the Christians fell back into their old sexual practices. So it appeared now that there was no difference between the people in the church and the people out of the church. Imagine how Paul felt when he heard that. The cancer came back. 
the new major turned out to be one that you don't like either. The new boyfriend or girlfriend is a bigger loser than the first one. Paul's looking at this church that he planted, that he gave two years of his life to, and he's realizing it, it's crumbling. It's falling apart. He's hoping the next church planning magazine doesn't have Corinth on the cover. But what does he do? Does he have hard things to say to them? Does he confront them? If you've ever read the letter, yes. But that isn't what he does first. He looks at even the church of Corinth with gratitude. He looks at even these crazy, sinful, backstabbing people and says, I'm grateful for something. Let's read what he's grateful for. Look at verse 4. I think, I give thanks to my God always. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. He's talking about the resurrection, his death and resurrection, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, we have in this paragraph one of the most amazing teachings on gratitude in the whole Bible. Because circumstantially, when Paul looked at the church in Corinth, there was no reason to give thanks. They were a wreck. And yet he wrote them, and once he gets past his introduction, the first thing he does is say, I'm thankful. I'm grateful. Friends, that's how a life of prayer is sustained. It's that even in the worst of circumstances, you can look and still see glimmers of what God's doing and express gratitude to him for them. We don't have a fake joy, brothers and sisters, that refuses to look at the hard things in life. Rather, we have a Savior who trumps every hardship because we know Jesus always wins. Christ will come back. Christ will set everything right. Christ will be victorious. Do you hear that in his prayer, in his expression of gratitude? Christians are joyful people because we know our greatest needs have already been met in Christ. Therefore, we can face the hard things, even the things where we have invested significantly and they're falling apart, and know that Jesus will win because he's coming back. Gratitude is about God's work, not about our circumstances. Now, if you read that prayer closely, you'll see that Paul is thanking God for God's work in them. Did you catch that? He actually doesn't say anything about what they are doing. So, I think that's so helpful for us when we don't feel grateful and when the people around us are not treating us well and when our circumstances are worse than they were before we became Christians. Paul chose to focus on God and God's work, 
not upon the things that were happening in his life. If you took the time this week to look at the other 12 letters that Paul wrote, you'd find that in the vast majority of them, he starts by saying, Paul and my buddy to the church and the folks there and the leaders there, and I'm thankful for your faith, church, in Christ and for your love for each other. That's his normal pattern. But he doesn't say that. Why? Not rhetorical. Why? They weren't exhibiting consistent faith in God. And they certainly weren't exhibiting love towards each other. So this guy isn't saying, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Thank you. (laughs) Christians, sometimes I think when we talk about gratitude or joy or thankfulness, we live in this make-believe, pretend world that everybody else besides the moron telling you to be always joyful regardless of what's happening to you seems to see, but that person ignores. And that's, this life is hard. This life is disappointing. This life will not turn out the way you hope it will. You are going to die. You are going to have friends reject you. You're going to have church members be undependable. You're going to get fired from a job. You're going to invest in something that turns out to go bankrupt. Your kids are going to hurt you. Every day with Jesus. That is not helpful. So Paul looks at the church in Corinth and doesn't say, you guys are so sweet. Don't ever change. He says, I'm going to look at what God has done. And I'm going to focus on the unchanging truth that the gospel is always right, that Jesus will come back, and that God has given you, even you messed up church, everything you need. And I'm going to choose to focus there. Friend, how different your life would be if you had that perspective. Paul rose above his circumstances and praised God. He lived in gratitude for God's work because his life was about God, not about people. His life was about what Jesus had already done, not what he wanted God to still do. The ground of his faith was unshakable because it was rooted in an objective event. Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, everything has changed. If you want to be a person of prayer, that's got to be the objective center of your life. Not your circumstances. It's easy to look at things in our church and in our individual lives and complain Pessimism is really powerful. And have you, have you found that it spreads? Pessimism births more pessimism. 
regardless of the situations life presents us, we can become people of prayer because God is a saving God. Because God's rescuing us. He's delivering us. He's given us life with him. And he's going to come back. When circumstances are terrible, we can encourage each other in the ever-present truth of the gospel. That's what Paul did. If we walk through that paragraph, we see that he says, Church, you were enriched by God. Christ's testimony was confirmed in you. God will sustain you. You were called by him. Your eternal home is secure. God's grace was given to you. You're his kids. You're not lacking any gift that you need to do all that God's called you to do. We've been called into fellowship with Jesus who will sustain us. The gospel is 100% fact. He will sustain you. You will be guiltless in him even if you feel guiltful today. That's what Paul says gratitude comes from. An absolute confidence in the grace and love of Jesus at the cross. Friends, if, if you individually want to become a praying person, not simply a person that has these little short stints of prayer, when life is hard, then you, you simply have to become a person of gratitude. And if we want to be a church that's happy whether there's 20 people here or 200, that's happy whether we have lights to turn the Light, the money to turn the lights on or we're sitting here in the dark. Then we've got to be people that focus on what the gospel has already done. Not on the tangential things we hope God will do. Are you with me? So let me give you, in closing, a couple of suggestions on how to develop that. How to put that in practice. How do you grow in Gratitude. Well, if we track through Paul's life, I think there's a couple of suggestions that he would give us if he were here. First, how do we grow in gratitude? Well, we reflect often on how we became Christians. See, when Paul looked at this church in Corinth, he didn't look at how they were acting. Now, he got to it. He talked about their behavior. He addressed their sin. But that isn't where he started. He started with adoration and praise and gratitude. Hmm, maybe he'd read Jesus' prayer or heard it. He simply followed the pattern of what Jesus told him to do in prayer. So when he wrote to the church in Corinth, he started with thanking God for what God had done in them. And then in this, some of you this will make uncomfortable, but I would challenge you, read the book, follow 1 Corinthians through. One of the most divisive doctrines in, well, one of the doctrines that so often is thought of as divisive in the church is the doctrine of election. That God chooses people. And that we choose to respond to the gospel invitation because God already chose us. That doctrine is very often thought of as unimportant and unnecessary and it ought to be relegated to the side. But read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul uses the doctrine of election to say, quit fighting with each other. Now, 
That seems kind of crazy to our way of thinking. But deep, significant doctrine doesn't divide, it unites. Because you see, if we came to understand that ultimately we're brothers and sisters in Christ, not because we're better or smarter than anybody else, but because God called us. That we chose God because God chose us. That means every other person who's following God has had the same experience. That's genuine love. Love that's not rooted in your behavior, but love that's rooted in God's sovereign choice. Therefore, how could I ever fight with you over something petty? How could I ever pursue your wife? How could we ever gossip about each other behind our backs? Why could we ever throw a fit so big over money that we end up in court? God chose us. Are you with me? Paul says that doesn't divide, that unites. Because we realize it is God who brought us into the same family. So, Salvation is all of God's grace. We can rest in that. And when we have disappointments, conflicts, hardships, trials, disagreements with each other, we know that ultimately we don't stick it out simply because we like each other, but because God placed us into the same family. So start there. Start in God's actions in our salvation. Second, prioritize people. Christians are people who are passionate about people. God's truth has taught us that life isn't ultimately about our stuff. It's not about how high we climb in our careers. It's not about how big of a home we can have or how many fancy vacations we can go on. Life is ultimately about people. And so God places us into a family, the church, where we can give and receive and where we can prioritize investment in each other's lives and investment in the lives of people who are not yet among us. Have you found that the more you spend time with people and invest in them and love them and serve them, regardless of what you're getting back, that your life is better? Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. If you make life about you and about getting more and more and more and more and more, then Even as you get more and more and more and more, you're going to become grumpier, more unhappy, and more alone. Because life is not made to work like that. Life's about people. So when you're making your schedule, think about people. How can I prioritize giving, loving, serving, enjoying people? Spend your best energy and resources on relationships, not on stuff. And you'll find gratitude grows naturally in that kind of environment. Third, rejoice in the spiritual progress of others. When you see people growing in faith and love, when when you see an unhappy person becoming happier in the gospel, when you see a person who was tied up in fear and in worry and anxiety becoming a person easier to talk to, When you see someone standing doing something in the name of Christ that they never would have done without him, when you see someone who is mortified 
to speak to a lost person about the truth. When you see someone who seemed to always be down in the dumps with their head in the sand, lifting their head up with a smile, what should we do? We ought to do what Paul did. Go to them and say, thanks to God for what I'm seeing him do in your life. Can you imagine what would happen if even half of us made a habit of that? If we were so unabsorbed in our own lives that we were actually noticing the progress of others and then speaking thanks to God on behalf of God's work in them, we would be like overflowing with joy. Because God hasn't wired you for life to be about you. He's wired you for life to be about him and about people. So take up Paul's habit to rejoice in the progress of others. And finally, I've got to end here for time's sake. Kill envy. Friends, envy robs gratitude. Envy throws water on the fuel and the fire of joyfulness. So if I'm always looking out at all the rest of you thinking, gee, they're smarter than me, they're better looking than me, they have more than I do, their lives are much easier, I'm never going to be a person of gratitude. Now all of those things might be true, but if I'm constantly looking at your life saying, oh man, you got a lot better than I do, then I'm going to be rotting on the inside. But if I look at you and say, God, thank you for what you've given them. I can see evidence that you're real, you're powerful, you're present because of what you're doing in them. Lo and behold, I'm going to become a more grateful person. Friends, you've got to be militant about resisting envy. Anytime jealousy crops up, even a little, you've got to squash it. You've got to kill it. You've got to choke it. You've got to run it over with your car. You gotta shoot it, you gotta slit its throat, whatever you do, you gotta kill it. I'm serious. Jealousy and envy are are the cancer of the gratitude that God wants you to feel. There's always somebody that has a life better than yours. There's also always someone who has it worse than you. God's given you exactly what you need. I wonder before I voice a prayer for all of us, You'd take a moment and ask God what he would want you to do with this message. And then respond to him in prayer. Father, we are, many of us, people very prone to pessimism, to negativity, to jealousy, to envy, to frustration. And then we face a lot of circumstances that are difficult in which those things can flourish easy. And yet when we step back and we think about the most important need in our lives is to be released from bondage to sin and reconnected with you and your people. And you give us that. That's the gospel. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose in victory. And now all who believe that message and are willing to turn from their sin and turn 
to the pursuit of a life with you in charge are given a gift, the gift of salvation. And that gift makes us secure in you, accepted completely, guiltless forever, never alone. People promised eternity with you. And people who you will sustain and reproduce your very life in us. God, how could we ever miss that and lose sight of it? But we do. So I pray on behalf of all of my brothers and sisters here today that you would forgive us for lack of gratitude. That you'd forgive us for false gospels that we've believed that because we do particular moral or spiritual things that you somehow owe us easy lives. God, forgive us for the envy and even the anger that we feel towards you. And would you renew in us afresh and anew today a vibrant, passionate, remembrance of what we have because of you. And help us to become a grateful people, a people that, like Paul, regardless of how difficult our circumstances in life may be, there is a joy flowing out of us because you are in us. And even in hard circumstances, your power is perfected. We can experience you more sometimes when things are hard than when they're easy. And help us to become a people that very naturally seem to notice your work in other people's lives and take the just minute or two it, it takes to stop and say, brother, sister, I see God doing this in you and I thank you for saying yes to him. He is at work in you and I see it. And Father, I'd also pray for those among us who have not yet trusted you for salvation. And much of what I said today might seem strange and even weird, perhaps impossible. But Father, before they leave this room, would you internally help them to settle in the conviction that Jesus really did come and die and rise again. And he really does love them. And you can save them even now. And I pray if their major questions are answered, that even as I'm praying, they would turn to you for salvation. And if not, that they'd hang around for a few minutes afterwards and visit with somebody around them, get their questions answered, or at least pursue them. And God, together with one voice, we say thank you for what you've given us in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.